Hey, Nate. Yes, Sam. Do you ever think about how much humans have changed the planet? Like, and I don't just mean climate change. I mean, like, building roads and houses and things like that. Yeah, and I wonder if these changes are affecting animals and how they're adapting to it. Yeah, and I also sometimes wonder, like, do other animals impact the environment of other animals? I don't know. Hey, I got a question question about about that. that. Welcome to another episode of Hey, I Got a Question About That. I'm Sam. I'm Nate, and this is a podcast and video series where we explore all the research going on here at the Penn State Eberly College of Science. Right, and today we're joined by Tracy Langkilde, who is the department head and a professor of biology. And Tracy studies animals and how they adapt and deal with a changing environment. Let's check it out. We are joined here in the studio by Tracy Langkilde. She's the department head and a professor of biology here at the Eberly College of Science at Penn State. Thanks for joining us, Tracy. Thanks for having me. Um, Maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about your research. Great. Um, So I'm really interested in how animals deal with changes in their environment. So the world is a constantly changing place. Animals' environments change all the time, and I'm interested in how they can learn or adapt to these changes and what effects this has on their everyday life. So what animals are you studying specifically? Um, So I have kind of two main focuses. One is looking at the effects of invasive species, so both animals that move in and become new predators of, in my case, lizards, or a new potential food source. And the animal that moved in, in this case, is fire ants. So they're uh, an invasive species that's pretty well known and can attack and kill lizards, um, but will also sting them if they're eaten. So they present this novel challenge, both in terms of being a new predator in the environment and a really dangerous food source that the lizards have not ever dealt with before. We also look at noise as a novel kind of human-induced environmental threat. Uh, So roads are very noisy places and they are everywhere. And in these really noisy environments, it can make it really difficult for animals that communicate vocally um, to do so because the noise takes up part of the acoustic space. So we're interested in how frogs can communicate in noisy environments. Uh, We're looking at noise induced by roads and by uh, micellar shale fracking. So the compressor stations associated with that are really noisy. Invasive species can also be really noisy. So for example, Cuban tree frogs make a really loud uh, raucous croak and it can be very hard for uh, native frogs to communicate in that space because there's so much noise in the environment. How do these kind of changes in the vi- environment um, affect the animals? What, what kind of responses do they have? So in terms of the lizards with the fire ants, uh, lizards rely on crypsis or camouflage as their way to survive. And so what happens when fire ants first come across a lizard and lizards have never seen them before, they just rely on this camouflage. So they close their eyes and they lie really flat on the ground and this is not a good response to fire ants. They just recruit in larger and larger numbers. And so we're seeing changes in behaviour. So these lizards start doing what seems to make a lot of sense, what you or I would do when a fire ant climbs on and starts attacking them, they flick them off really vigorously and they run away from the mound so they stop getting attacked. And so when you have lizards in populations that have been around fire ants for a long time, so about 40 generations, most of the lizards in the environment respond in this kind of, uh, this way that makes sense. 
But when you have lizards from an area that have never encountered fire ants before, they don't know what to do. Ants are never a problem for adult lizards, and so they just lie really still and hope they'll go away, and it's not very effective. How long is 40 generations for a lizard? So fire ants have been around for about 80 years, and so the lizards that have been around fire ants for longest have been around fire ants for about 40 generations. And this is a time scale that we've seen evolutionary change happen in other cases. So we, when we think about evolutionary change, we're usually thinking of like these kind of almost geological timescales. Um, 80 years seems really fast. Is that, is that unusual or is that something new? So you're right. Until relatively recently, we thought that all these human-induced environmental changes were happening way too fast for animals to be able to respond. But we've got a really big and growing body of evidence now that animals can evolve in as little as 20 to 40 generations. So this can happen pretty fast. Animals are able to adapt in a pretty short time span. So what is so special about these invasive species? Like, how did they get in these environments? So invasive species are typically moved by humans. So they're introduced to an area um, through human transportation, uh, either intentionally. So in Australia, we have some really good examples of invasive species that were introduced by people to try and solve an environmental problem. And then they spread really rapidly and increase in numbers and usually cause more problems than they were solving. In the case of the species that I work on, invasive fire ants were introduced from South America in shipping material. So they were introduced via Port Mobile in Alabama and then have spread rapidly up and out since then. So we have, we have native ants here. Why are these invasive ants so bad? So the fire ants are just really different to the native ants in the environment. Uh, most of the native ants aren't as toxic or they have a different venom and they're kept in check by native predators and parasites. Fire ants do really, really well in disturbed environments like the ones in the southeast and so they have the competitive advantage and they have this kind of novel venom that none of the other ants or lizards or other animals in the environment have evolved to. So when humans bring animals into an area, they usually transport them much longer distances than they would naturally disperse. So these animals are usually very ecologically different to the other animals in the environment. And so you mentioned that one of the responses that you see in the lizards is this change in behavior. Um, is there other physiological changes? Yeah, so lizards that have evolved with fire ants also have much longer legs. And we were trying to figure out why, and then we took some slow motion video and realized that when a lizard is attacked by an ant, what it does is it brings its back leg up and it scratches the attached ant off its neck or its back. And so lizards that have longer legs have a longer reach and are more effectively able to remove attacking ants. So are there any negative effects to these behaviors that they're exhibiting now to get these fire ants off of them? So lizards that behaviorally respond to fire ants really benefit. If they don't respond, they die really quickly, like in less than a minute. And so behaviorally responding when ants crawl on them is a huge immediate survival advantage. But you can imagine that if you're out in a forest and if every time an ant crawls on you, you do a dramatic twitch and backflip, that's going to attract attention of visual predators. And so these lizards that are adapted to survive fire ants are much more vulnerable to attack by visual predators such as birds. So we, we sort of tend to think of um, evolution and adaptation as this almost a progress forward, but it seems like there's a kind of a cost-benefit thing going on here. How, does, how do you think that plays out you know, as you move 
through time. Yeah, so we often think that adaptation or evolutionary responses to a novel perturbation is of net benefit to the organism. So for lizards that have evolved to deal with fire ants, they have an immediate survival advantage, and that's fantastic. And that seems to be what we focus on because it's exciting and it seems to have solved the problem. Evolution or adaptation intrinsically changes an animal. So it pushes them off their natural trajectory and it changes the way they look and behave and function. And we're starting to pay more attention to the consequences of that. So lizards that respond to fire ants uh, survive in the presence of fire ants, but we don't know what the consequence is for other interactions in their environment. So it looks like it makes them more vulnerable to predators. It might make it harder for them to find food. Um, we found that lizards that have evolved with fire ants are less likely to eat fire ants. And in fact, that carries over to native ants as well. So if they learn to avoid fire ants, they put all ants in the same pot and just avoid eating ants, which could entirely change their prey base and have all sorts of cascading effects through the ecosystem. So it seems like this, you know, major change in the environment and the fact that they're, these lizards are now living with this, these tiny predators running around um, would be stressful on the lizards. Do they, is there responses that we can look at to that stress? Yeah, so we can measure indicators of stress by looking at levels of stress-relevant hormones in the blood. So lizards have corticosterone, which is equivalent of human cortisol. And we found that lizards that live with fire ants and get attacked frequently by them have much higher levels of these stress-relevant hormones in their blood system. And is that an adaptation to dealing with those stressors, or is that probably a, a net negative kind of thing? So we think that this is just a response to getting frequently attacked. Um, what we're really interested in is what this means for the lizards and their offspring, and if there's any adaptations to dealing with being physiologically stressed for long periods of time. Have you seen any of those effects? So a really typical effect of stress, as many people know, is that it suppresses immune function. If humans experience stress, stressful periods, exams or high stress periods of their life, they often get sick afterwards. Lizards do the same thing. So if you get lizards from natural populations and expose them to stress over prolonged periods, their immune system crashes out. However, this changes if fire ants are around. So you can imagine these lizards are getting stung really frequently, which is resulting in their skin getting broken. So when ants attack, they bite onto a lizard scale and they pry the scale up and then sting in the underlying flesh. So lizards are getting wounded frequently in these fire ant invaded areas. And if they were to suppress their immune function, they could be really vulnerable to bacteria and other forms of um, infection. So in these populations, if you expose lizards to stress for prolonged periods, they upregulate their immune system. So when these lizards are stressed, it probably means they're being attacked and stung a lot. And so they ramp up their immune system to counteract that. What is the goal of the ants? So the ants appear to just wander aimlessly through the world, stinging anything they come across. And if it happens to die and be edible, they'll pull it back to the mound and okay. eat it. So it's partly mound defense. Partly there's so many of them that they can just go around and attack stuff and partly finding food. So they're uh, brood needs protein to be able to develop properly, so they need to bring back some kind of protein source. Does this stress affect the lizard's offspring? So the effects of stress on offspring is a really important question. In humans, babies of stressed mothers are often born smaller, and we assume that that's a negative consequence. But since we don't know the evolutionary context and we can't 
manipulate the stress or predators in the environment, we can't really test that. It's possible that having a really small baby could be good if food is the limiting stressor or predators and so having a small baby you can pick up and run away with would be really great. So we're testing this idea in lizards by looking at effects of stress on offspring and we found that stress does affect the offspring. We found that stress experienced during pregnancy does affect the offspring and we're in the final stages of figuring out what that means to the offspring. So it is possible that stress experienced by the mothers can prepare the offspring for a high stress environment. So babies of moms that were really stressed might be better able to survive that stressor. So you mentioned some other environmental changes that are that you're interested in studying, one of them being noise. Can you talk a little bit about that study? Yeah, so noise can be really important for animals that communicate acoustically. So if you can imagine a really noisy roadside environment, that spectral space is then not really available for animals to communicate in. And animals do have really good uh, adaptations to be heard over that noise. For example, humans, if we walk past a bus and we're having a conversation, we will talk louder and at a higher pitch to be heard over it. So frogs do this too. And we were interested in how frogs adjust their calls in response to noisy, invasive Cuban frogs. And we found that frogs that have calls within the same spectral frequency as these Cuban frogs will have to change their calls, whereas native frogs that have very different calls don't need to adjust them at all. And is that in, like happening within an individual frog, that that frog sort of changes the frequency of its, of its calls? Yeah, so this is in real time. So we will set up speakers in the field and then record a frog's call and then play a Cuban tree frog and see how their call changes and then remove the call and see it go back again. If, an, if a frog needs to change the way it, it's calling in order to be heard over the sort of environmental noise, there also is an, uh, the other end of that communication that another frog has to recognize that call, right? Like how does that affect their ability to communicate. Right, so in some ways changing your call would make it easier, we think, for a female to hear a male. But the call is different. And since females use very specific call qualities to figure out whether a mate is suitable or not, having males call in very different ways could affect these female choices. And so we'd really like to go out and look at whether female choice changes in these noisy environments and they start choosing males based on these new core characteristics. And what about, you mentioned road noise as another source of this sort of environmental change. Um, how, do, how are the frogs responding to that? So the frogs that we're focusing on are wood frogs, which breed in small temporary ponds, often near roadsides. In spring, when the pools first start melting or thawing, the males move to the ponds and start calling. And then females will emerge from underground and go and find the males. What we found is that in the presence of road noise, the females are unable to locate the male calls. And given the fact that these frogs have about five days in which to breed, if the females can't locate the males or take longer doing so, that could have serious effects on their reproductive success. Do you ever see like male frogs deciding it's too noisy here, I'm going to go somewhere else? So wood frogs are really interesting in that they have what we call site fidelity, so they return back to the pond that they emerge from as little baby froglets. And so even if a pond is completely unsuitable to breed in, if it's completely dried out, the males will hang out there and the females will sit there and eventually lay their eggs in a dry pile of leaves. 
So eventually they might move away from these noisy ponds, but it will take a while. The population using that pond will probably go locally extinct. Are there other effects that the road noise is having on the frogs? Yeah, so frogs exposed to road noise change the secretion of peptides in their skin. So they secrete these things out of their skin that protects them from all sorts of things, including pathogens. And we found that if we play road noise to frogs, they suppress the production of peptides that are responsible for killing the chytrid fungus that has been implicated in frog declines worldwide. How are you able to sort of isolate that it is road noise that's causing this reaction? So we do a combination of field work and work back at the lab. So in the field, we try to keep things as natural as possible. We study interactions between lizards and fire ants on a real-life active fire ant mound. So the ants are doing what they would naturally do. The lizards are in an environment that they're familiar with. For the road noise, we look at populations with different levels of road noise exposure in the field, and we'll do recordings and playbacks. But then it's very hard to isolate what is responsible for any differences. There may be so many factors that are co-varying with road noise presence, for example. So we bring animals back to the lab and we make sure that the environment is constant except for the presence of road noise. We looked at whether animals can adapt to the presence of road noise. So I lived next to a freeway when I was a child and really heard the noise for about the first week and then tuned it out. And we're interested in whether frogs could do this too. So we collected them as eggs from really noisy interstate side ponds or quiet countryside ponds and brought them back into the lab and raised them under these similar environments. So they had not differed in their exposure to noise. And then once they turned into little froglets, we played back noise and had a look to see how this affected the levels of these stress-relevant hormones. And what we found was that countryside frogs elevated their stress hormones in response to noise, whereas these roadside evolved ponds had no stress response to road noise. So does that suggest that this is a genetic sort of hereditary change that's happening? It's probably some kind of hereditary change. um, And we think maybe to avoid the immune costs of this stress response. But it's also possible that it's a maternal effect. So these offspring were not exposed to road noise, but their mothers were. So the mothers could have in some way prepared the offspring for this inv- this noisy environment. So are these frogs from generally noisy environments just chilled out, or is that a response from the road noise? So we don't know. We do know that frogs from road noise side ponds don't have a robust stress response to noise, But we don't know whether this is specific to road noise or if they've just got a generally suppressed stress response. And this could be really important because as much as stress has a bad name, it plays a really important role. And if these frogs have lost their ability to respond to stresses, this could have implications for their ability to respond to things like predators or other environmental threats. So presumably the the lizards and the frogs, there's all sorts of changes that are occurring in their body. Um, You mentioned different things already, the hormone changes, the behavior changes, the morphological changes. How how are you studying these things? Are you trying to isolate them to study them one at a time? Or is it kind of an everything all at once approach? So we often study these different components separately. Uh, So we look at how specific environments will affect morphology or will affect stress hormones. We really work to try and look at how these different adaptations interact. So, for example, for the lizards, the longer limbs 
support the behavioural changes. And in fact, the hormones also will trigger the behaviour. So it seems like these things interplay in really complex ways to support the adaptive response of the lizards to fire ants. So all, all of this information that you're learning in the lizards and the frogs seems like it would be relevant to humans because our environment is also sort of constantly changing. Do you think that there's you know, lessons that we can learn? Yeah, I think our research is telling us something about how our stress response has evolved, uh, the fact that it can play really important roles, and we're getting some really new insight into what stress means for the next generation and whether this can prepare our offspring to better deal with the environment that we've been raised in. So if animals can adapt to these environmental stressors, can we just do whatever we want, basically, and the animals will adapt? So we do have some really great evidence that animals can adapt to environmental stresses, but that does not mean that all animals can adapt to all stresses. And we also are just learning about the long-term implications of these. So even though animals can adapt in the short term to the presence of an environmental stressor and survive, it's looking like this is going to have long-term implications, which could be really important for animals in the future. But doing studies like this on a range of species and a range of environmental stresses will help us figure out which species can adapt and which species need more help and what is the best way to help them. That was cool. Yeah, it's crazy to think that I know a lizard's generation is about two years and they can change their traits that fast to overcome things in their environment. Yeah, and it's also kind of crazy to think about that a part of a frog's environment that it has to deal with is other frogs and, and the noises they make and that, that they can change the pitch of their croaks, you know, to deal with that. Yeah, and then the frogs that are listening have to adapt too, and somehow they still find each other. Nature finds a way, I guess. Life uh, finds a way. <laughs> That's the one. So if you want to learn more about Tracy's research or any of the research going on here at the Penn State Emberley College of Science, we will have links in the show notes below. Make sure to check out our previous episodes if you haven't already. You can find us wherever you find podcasts or on YouTube. And give us a like, subscribe, and a comment. Thanks. Hey, Nate. Yes, Sam. Have you ever been uh, covered in honey, tied up, and left to die on a hill of red ants? Such a stress. Spring paper. And she studies how the environment, um, I don't know what. Your Hummer is killing the frogs. The squirrels, like, eat meat now because it's, like, in the trash can, and they're just like, oh, ham sandwich. Explore all the research going on here at the Eberly College of Science at Penn State. Dang it. <laughs> so close. Right. Um, right. Uh, yeah, it was really neat to... Nope. Imagine now that you're just a little lizard. Have you ever wondered if the Nittany Lion was a real thing? It used to be, but it couldn't adapt. Hey, Nate. Yes, Sam. Do you ever have, uh, like, a red ant, like, lodge its, its jaws into, like, the back of your neck, and you really wish that your leg was longer so that you could reach up there and flick it off?